He didn't leave his church without any instructions or organization. He gave the assurance that he is with us always to the end of the age by his Holy Spirit. He declared that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And for the benefit of his church in this world, he entrusted a level of authority to officers or men who are to be his servants. Chapter 30, section 1, articulates this truth. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, has therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Chapter 30, it's, it's really a summary of two other documents that were produced by the Westminster Assembly. Uh, the Assembly produced a document called the Form of Presbyterian Church Government, and then another lesser-known one called the Directory for Church Government. And the, the latter, sadly, is, is lesser-known, almost forgotten, because it wasn't a given official approval by England and Scotland. But nevertheless, uh, those documents lie behind chapter 30. Now, you may think, who cares about church government? <laughs> but I want to submit to you that this is a very important and relevant subject for our time. Because there are many Christians today, and this may be the predominant view today, that really believe that there is, there is not a biblical government that has been instituted by Jesus. Um, some years ago, I heard a well-known megachurch pastor very confidently assert that there is no church government that has been ordained by Jesus in the New Testament. Um, that same man went on to deny the authority of the scriptures, but the point is that this is a common belief today. And I would submit to you that a, that a plain reading of the New Testament refutes this idea. Because when we read the, the New, New Testament, what do we find? We find elders being appointed in local congregations. We see the apostles laboring in the ministry of word and prayer. We see men like Timothy and Apollos appointed to be ministers of word and sacrament. Acts chapter 15 records what we would now call a presbytery or a classis meeting. There is a government that Christ has appointed for his church for our benefit, and it is our duty to adhere to the government that Jesus has appointed. And when the church ignores the king and his instructions to us, the church really does suffer. And it's, I think it's sad today that people look at this as kind of, well, this is just a matter of indifference. Like, who, why does church government matter? And we look back through history, and we will find that our Reformed forefathers in the faith felt very differently. For them... This matter was of the utmost importance because it came from the hand of King Jesus. And they, they were so uh, convicted of this matter, it was so important to them that many of them suffered persecution and were even killed 
for their belief that the king and head of the church has instituted a government that is separate from the civil magistrate. Now, this subject, it may not seem this way, but it's actually a natural transition from the, the previous chapters in the sacraments. Because we, we read, both in the chapter on baptism and the Lord's Supper, that the sacraments were to be administered by lawfully ordained ministers. And behind that statement, there is a government of the church that is assumed. And so let's, let's begin by thinking about the governor and the government. Uh, the first statement in the confession, uh, I pointed out to you from our call to worship, it, it echoes Colossians 1, and it underlines the reign and the rule of Christ. That Jesus is the king and head of the church. He is the sovereign and authoritative governor. We read how Isaiah foretold that Jesus, the king and governor, would carry on his shoulders a government, the increase of which there would be no end. Psalm 67 that we'll sing in a few minutes calls Jesus the governor of the whole earth. And all of these Old Testament statements about Jesus the governor instituting this government, this was fulfilled when Jesus completed his work and he ascended into heaven. But before he did, he left his church with what we call the Great Commission. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think what we often miss is, while this commission has relevance for all of us, this was specifically an apostolic commission. It was given to the apostles. They were the one, ones who would teach and administer the sacraments, and then that later would be uh, passed on to ordained ministers. Paul wrote of Christ's reign in Colossians 1, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. And as we begin to think about church government, it has to begin here. The acknowledgement that Jesus is the only king and head of the church. He is the sovereign governor to whom we must submit. The, the church will only prosper if the reign of Christ is acknowledged, if his word is submitted to. It, it's a sad thing today that the term Presbyterian has been associated with liberalism. In fact, when the previous church I pastored at, uh, there was a deliberate choice not to include Presbyterian in the name because of the negative connotations. And that's because some Presbyterian denominations have forsaken the king and head of the church and they have abused the Presbyterian form of government. <clears throat> and the church 
The church's government is only going to prosper in as much as we bow to the king and head, Jesus. And to this end, when, when Jesus ascended, he entrusted authority to earthly officers to carry out his will. Again, the Great Commission was apostolic in nature. The men he appoints are, are under him. They are submissive to his rule, to his word. They are accountable to him. In, in the New Testament, what we see is how this authority was entrusted first to apostles. And then we find a bunch of different terms that are used interchangeably. From the apostles, it was then entrusted to elders or bishops or overseers, sometimes called leaders, teachers, and pastors. Those are not all different offices in the church, but rather different ways of describing the men who lead the church. Jesus gave these men the gift and the duty of governing his church. They are the men who teach and admonish. They are the men who preach all that Jesus has commanded and administer the sacraments the way Jesus commanded. This is why most Reformed churches hold to some form of Presbyterian church government. And that term Presbyterian, it comes out of the biblical word for elder, which is simply presbyteros. So a Presbyterian government has elders who lead. And one writer said this on uh, regarding this Presbyterian church government. He said, here the confession articulates the regular principle for church government. The conviction is that the organization of the church is not left to human wisdom, but that Christ has given directions for the permanent form of church government in his word. And again, echoing the, the spirit of the reformers and their, their belief that this matter was very important, uh, the vows that I took to become an ordained minister, I had to agree that Christ has left his church with this form of biblical government. Now, in this Presbyterian church government, it sometimes looks a little bit different, but there are officers who are elders. And they are called to rule and shepherd. They're called to instruct the flock. There are pastors or ministers, uh, elders who have the full-time calling of shepherding the flock, of preaching the word, of administering the sacraments. There are deacons who engage in the ministry of mercy, who, according to Acts 6, are, are, are there to free up the, the, the minister to labor in the ministry of prayer, preaching, and the sacraments. And we know that we don't do this perfectly, and, and no mere men do. But nevertheless, our aim is to honor Christ by governing his church and the power of the Spirit in the way that he commands. And we see then in the scripture that church officers, that overseers are given the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Um, 
chapter 30, section 2 of the Confession says this, to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power to respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. Now, in the Bible, keys are a universal symbol of authority. Um, If you... um, now, let's say you were leaving the country and you gave someone the keys to your house. Um, you know, they might say, you know, did they leave you in charge? Yeah, they gave me the keys to the castle. Keys in the Bible are a symbol of authority. And that means elders in the church are given authority in ecclesiastical matters, in church matters. Um, we, we read in Matthew 16... Uh, And again, remember the foundation for what Jesus said. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, there is that level of authority. Jesus said this again, In Matthew 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now that verse is often referenced in the Uh, context of prayer meetings. And while it is true that the Lord is with us when we gather in his name, what he's talking about here is the rule of a multitude of elders. He's talking about this authority, and Jesus uh, clearly uh, has in view more than one elder serving together, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Uh, Jesus, he reiterated this after his resurrection. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, the message of those three passages is clear, but it's also weighty for church officers. The point is that it is the duty of elders to judge by the word of God, by what we see and what we hear, whether someone has a credible profession of faith. A credible profession of faith is, do you actually understand the gospel and does your life from what we see actually reflect that you believe that gospel? Officers are given the power to bind or loose, to retain or forgive sins. The elders are to determine who should be admitted to the church and who should be barred from the church. 
And the confession says this is done by the word and censures. And what they mean by censures is discipline. By the word and discipline. And uh, one writer said this. He said, the preaching of the word is the foremost duty because it guides and protects people. It lets us know where we stand before God. It is the primary tool of church discipline because it convicts us of sin, drives us to repentance, and leads us to Christ, Zion's only king and head. So it's it's a weighty matter for church officers. But I think when we think about this subject, we need to we need to have the biblical balance. I, I, I always use the analogy of theological pendulum swings. And I think what we see in, in much of the church in our land is sort of a reaction against the unbiblical authority that is seen in the Roman Catholic Church. And so there's a downplaying of church leadership. It's not really something that is important. Um, I think we've, we've all encountered people in, in these mega churches, and they're going through something, and you ask them, well, do your, your elders, does your pastor know what you're going through? And it's a foreign idea to them. Uh, they, their, their, their pastor, or, or if they have elders, have no clue what is going on in their life. And uh, so there's this discarding of church authority, but then we don't want to lord our authority over people like the Roman Catholic Church does. And so the biblical balance is that as men appointed by Christ, we are to exercise our authority with care, with gentleness, seeking to embody the spirit of Christ toward people. Peter warns us not to lord our authority over anyone. That means that there are times when, as leaders of the church, we will have to repent, we will have to admit mistakes, and we will have to correct course. And I think what is striking about uh, Peter's confession and Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on on the rock bed of this confession, and I'm going to entrust you the keys of the kingdom, what does Peter do right after that? Jesus says, I'm going to to die, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be raised on the third day, and Peter began to rebuke him. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We at times, as leaders in the church, will have our minds set on the things of man and not on the things of God. And that means we need to lead with humility. We need to correct course. We need to be honest with ourselves. And I think the other qualification here is that this authority that leaders in the church are given is limited. It is spiritual in nature. It has to do with the church. And that means, and I do think some Presbyterian churches really need to to understand this, and that means there is stuff in your life that is none of our business. 
And I say that in a good way, that we don't have authority to be directing every aspect of your life, nor should we. We have authority in spiritual matters. And too often what happens is church leaders will seek to exercise authority in areas that are not in their sphere of authority, while at the same time neglecting those things that they should be exercising authority And so Jesus has left us with a government, and we should be thankful for it. We should be thankful that one man can't come into a Presbyterian church and be in charge and act as sort of a pope and dictate the entire direction of the church. Proverbs tells us there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And the Lord knows that. And so he has instituted this government that is for the good of his people. He is the king and head of the church and Presbyterianism as it is carried out under the headship of Jesus that the church should expect to be blessed and helped by. Let's end there and let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you might apply these words to our hearts. Lord, uh, help us to understand more a subject that often becomes a matter of indifference. Lord, may we give you thanks that you have not left us without any direction. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, and we also pray, Lord, that you would help us as, as leaders of the church to have our minds set on the things of God and not on the things of man. Lord, help us to embody the spirit of the Savior who is gentle and lowly in heart. Lord, we pray that you might give your leaders wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you make, might make us a blessing to your people. May it be for your glory and for your honor. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only King and Head of the Church. Amen.